0: This is Hot and Dry,
1: a podcast about climate change in the Southwest,
0: how it's changing the places we live, and how it's changing our lives.
1: I'm Colin Haffey,
0: and I'm Callie Carswell.
1: This season is all about wildfire.
0: We're going to look at the ways in which fires and fire risk are changing, and why it all matters to landscapes and to people.
1: This podcast is produced in collaboration with the Southwest Fire Science Consortium and funded by the Joint Fire Science Program.
0: So today, Colin, we're going to talk about the Wildland Urban Interface, which we will henceforth refer to as the WUI.
1: As the WUI, one of the few halfway decent acronyms in the field. (laughs) It actually means, it actually, Wildland Urban Interface and WUI actually are equally as confusing. It's like... (laughs) And a lot of times you get into these situations where it's like, oh, you know, explain acronyms to to folks who are new. And you're like, oh, well, we've got this thing. It's called the WUI. And then you say, oh, that means the wildland urban interface. And they're like, well, what the hell is the wildland urban interface?
0: So what the hell is it, Colin?
1: Oh, well, I mean, basically, it's like like, uh, we would describe the WUI growing up in like. Growing up in Iowa. Growing up in Iowa, we would call the wooey like the country, <laughs> like the country would be the right. wooey, where like, you know, you look across and you're in cornfields or prairie or something like that. And, you know, out west, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I think typically people think about the wooey as places where, you know, you've got trees in your yard and across the fence might be, you know, forest service or BLM land, you know, some public land and you have a little bit more wide open spaces but I think in the last couple of years, at least, the definition of WUI has really started to change. And what we're seeing, you know, at least in the way that that we operate with this definition of WUI, is that people are really thinking about the WUI in the last couple of years as being, you know, broadening out into more of the community and, and really being any place um, within, like, I think it's like a mile of um, some burnable material, so I think we've seen like in the fires in California and in other places that essentially entire towns, you know downtown shopping centers, everything like that, can be considered the wooey,
0: yeah, and for the purposes of this conversation today, we're going to be talking about the wooey in kind of the classic sense, so basically, it's like people living in or near the forest, so this is a place where wildlands, like forests or grasslands. And human communities um, overlap, and um, yeah, like you were saying, like the WUI these days can incur- can include basically what we think of as urban areas, uh, but traditionally we thought of it as more sort of rural or semi-rural communities, where yeah, people are living in the woods. And the reason it's important is that the WUI has grown like exponentially in recent years. There are way more people. Living in these kind of boundary zones than there used to be. I found a statistic from a New York Times story in 2018 that said that there were 12.7 million more houses and 25 million more people living in the WUI in 2010 than in
1: 1990. Wow, that's just wow. That's a that's a staggering number.
0: Yeah, and this is one of the reasons that we're seeing um, so many more sort of super destructive fires. Um, We've seen them especially in places like Colorado and California, um, where you have big wildfires that end up destroying a lot of homes, and in some cases, um, human life as well.
1: Yeah, and just working in the WUI can be really complicated. And so, you know, a prescribed fire, any sort of thinning work that you're doing to restore forests in in the back 40 essentially is, is really easy. It's, you're away from homes. You're not, you know, taking into account, um, the risk of, of accidentally lighting somebody's barn on fire or or somebody's house on fire, you know? And so I think when you start to do prescribed fire, especially in the WUI, it just adds another layer of complexity that, um, gives people more excuse essentially to, to back out of it. And, you know, more reasons to be more conservative with how and when they apply the good kind of fire that our forests need. And so it just reduces the sort of the good and healthy window that people can operate in. And ultimately, you know, the risk is that it results in in less good fire and more of these destructive, nasty kind of wildfires.
0: Yeah. And so today we're going to talk to a couple different folks um, who are le- either living working in the WUI or both. And the unifying thread through these conversations is essentially looking at the question of, okay, if people are going to live in these places, how can we do it better and in a way that uh, at least lowers the risk of what might be inevitably risky landscapes? We're going to start that conversation with someone you might not expect to be living in the WUI, and that is Tom Swetnam, So, Colin, tell us a little bit about who Tom is. He's kind of fire famous, isn't he?
1: Oh, yeah, Tom is totally fire famous. Um, Tom is one of the preeminent fire historians um, in in the world, really. Uh, we're fortunate to have him working on, ish, on science in the Southwest. Um, he got his start, actually, in the Gila in New Mexico and then moved over into University of Arizona where he did his master's and his PhD and then you know had a really long uh, amazing career at the laboratory of Tree Ring research studying fire history and fire climate relationships there
0: and so Tom's personal story um is effective in kind of putting to bed the idea that, oh, people are just living in these places because they don't understand the risk. They don't know that these are fire-prone landscapes. So here's Tom to tell you a little bit about where he lives.
2: I live in just north of Jemez Springs, New Mexico, in the Jemez Mountains. And uh, it's a few miles north, and I'm sitting up on the side of the mountain just below the, the cliffs of San Diego Canyon. And it's a real steep mountain slope covered in ponderosa pine with a one-way road coming into our our neighborhood here. It's kind of, it's really a classic wildland urban interface. You
0: might recall from some of our previous episodes that the Jemez Mountains have been home to some really um, big kind of poster child climate change type wildfires in the Southwest, especially the Lust Conscious Fire. And Tom lives not too far from where that burned. So I had to ask him. When you were getting ready to retire and told your colleagues in the fire world where you were moving, did anyone think you were nuts?
2: Yeah, especially people who lived up here who know the Hamas. Uh, when I told them I was moving to a place called Area Area 3 is the is the name that locals know this place. It's actually a little subdivision up uh, up on the side of the mountain here. And when people heard I was moving to Area 3, they were really like aghast. You know? Are you nuts? <laughs> You're moving to probably one of the one of the scariest places in the Hamos for, for fire problems and fire risk. And uh, yeah, I said, I'm pretty well aware of that. And there's, you know, there's a number of reasons why I'm doing that.
0: Had you heard of Area 3 before, Colin? I thought, you know, we're also talking about the mountains where Los Alamos National Lab is. And when he referred to it as Area 3, I thought like, oh, maybe it's a fire risky place, and there's also, like, nuclear waste buried there.
1: Yeah, no, I thought that same thing. Area, when I first heard it, Area 3 was, uh, it does have a, a Los Alamos National Lab kind of ring to it. Um, maybe that's what they're going for when they when they named their different things. It's not super creative, you know. Yeah. You expect, you expect things in a, an urban planning, you know, in the West to be named, like, Coyote Court and... <laughs> sagebrush way but
0: <laughs> so one of the interesting things um talking to Tom about you know why they made this choice is that um it it sort of brought up this idea that our perception of risk is all relative so the first time that I talked to Tom about this I was working on an essay kind of struggling with my own choice to live in New Mexico Um, I was writing about climate change a lot. Uh, I had moved here in 2014, and I don't remember the exact sequence of years, but it was was sometime not too long after that that we just had this, like, really punishing drought year. It felt sort of apocalyptic to live through. And I was really kind of, you know, questioning my own life choices and trying to examine whether I had just made a bad decision and was kind of engaging in my own form of climate denial living here. And one of the interesting things talking to Tom was that it it made me realize that this sort of like our risk perception and our feelings of safety are relative. You know, I had moved to Santa Fe from Colorado, which is not too far, too much further north of here, but it's north enough that it's just like a little bit wetter. And um, so this change felt a little bit unsafe to me. And Tom was going in the opposite direction. He was coming from Tucson, where he had worked at the um, University of Arizona. And northern New Mexico, to him, felt relatively safe.
2: And so living in Tucson, right? And so Tucson, as you well know, is in the desert. And, you know, probably right now on August, what is this, August 8th? They were gonna hit a, they're going to hit. They're going to hit 105 today, probably. They've been hitting 115, up to 115. Temperatures are just keep going up there in the desert, and summertime in the Tucson, man, you just stay indoors with the air conditioning. In
0: addition to studying fire, Tom studies climate change a lot, and I mean, you can imagine it's probably not too hard to imagine some. Some pretty apocalyptic future scenarios in Tucson.
2: In recent years, knowing what the trajectory is with climate change, it's been on my mind that, well, this is, Tucson is less and less a sustainable place to live, too, from a climate perspective, Um, worry about water, worry about energy, you know, and Imagine if electricity ever goes off, what's going to happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've only been to Tucson one time in the summer in the summer and it's like, oh my god, I don't know what you do if your air conditioner goes out for a couple of days.
0: Yeah, it could be pretty bad. Like, I mean, if the grid went down in Phoenix and Tucson in the middle of the summer, like people would definitely die.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: So anyway, this uh, for retirement, we were thinking go north and uh, maybe nor- northern New Mexico's not north enough, but for now it is.
0: So there was that, you know, Northern New Mexico to them felt like something of a refuge, but there was also just the emotional pull of home.
2: I grew up here in Hamas Springs in the 1960s. Um, and my father was a forest ranger up here. And so this was kind of a homecoming. And I just love the Hamus. I mean, everything about the Hamas has always been home to me. We, we understood too that you know, you're never safe where you are, ever you are with climate change. These days, and it's it's a matter of peace of mind <clears throat> and actually being in a place where you feel comfortable and happy anyway we, made, we, we just made that decision that to live here in this beautiful place uh, it was, it was worth it for us.
1: when your home is actually someplace that's, that's really nice like northern New Mexico, and uh, you can imagine moving back there
2: It's
0: the same reason you'll be migrat- migrating back to the cornfields of Iowa. In your
1: 60s, Colin. If we're if this generation is able to retire, I imagine Callie that uh, I will be looking elsewhere. You know, anywhere but the cornfields of Iowa.
0: Maybe by then, climate change will have made it too hard to grow corn, and Iowa will be like rewilding to some sort of future prairie, and it'll actually be a pretty sweet place to go.
1: It'll be like it'll be like short grass prairie, bison reintroduction, comma Mad Max, but super passive aggressive nice
0: yeah i mean not to like i'd watch that movie not to like hate on iowa whenever i drive through there i actually think it's kind of nice but we're showing our western elitism here yeah anyway getting back on track here we are in the moment rationalizing our decision to live in new mexico by hating on the midwest where we both grew up so um let's get back to tom's own rationalization for his life choices So after talking to him about this, like there is a way in which you can see that Tom's move makes perfect sense because he's really like spent his entire life's work, you know, thinking about and doing research on these landscapes. And by moving to the Hamas Mountains in retirement, he really gets to um, kind of, I guess, like get out of. The clouds of academia on this stuff and really like do the work of living it day to day
2: and i know that fire is is a dangerous thing but it's also a good thing and i know it's possible to live with fire it is possible to live with fire and so there's a vision about getting to that point where the forest is much more resilient and less risky and helping helping the forest get to that point and kind of living that instead of just talking about it means a lot to me.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't think it's hard for anybody to imagine that Tom's not the guy who's taking retirement, you know, just sitting down and watching golf. Um, he's out there actually doing tons of work um, and working closely with his neighbors to actually reduce some of the risk by thinning some of the the trees and brush and things like that.
2: One of the reasons we decided to, to make this jump out of the frying pan into the fire, if you will, was uh, the house itself we're living in and the property is actually very fire wise. And so this property has already been thinned. I think it's got, you know, probably something like 40 trees per acre on it, you know, and, it's, and they're mostly larger trees. So it's in actually pretty good shape. Our property is so that was one idea was well, I, we move here this beautiful spot and our property is fairly firewise. And now let's talk to the neighbors and see if we can get them to move along uh, with the rest of us and trying to you know, decrease our risk. And so we've been pretty successful in that. Both neighbors on both sides of me have now thinned their properties. And then there's another piece of big property that's just right across the road that actually is the location of a water supply And so with help from the Nature Conservancy and the NRCS and another USDA program, we've thinned 40 acres of that property. So, you know, we're moving moving that direction and we're working with the Firewise folks up here. But, you know, it's a big boulder to push up a hill. And uh, it's it's one property at a time right now.
0: So obviously, it's not that surprising that a person like Tom Swetnam, who makes a choice to live in the forest, is going to take measures to reduce the risk and to try to get his neighbors to do the same. Um, but obviously, everyone living in the wooey is not Tom Swetnam. And we wanted to understand how the kind of choices that he's making and that his neighbors are making fit into this larger context? Like, are there lots of other people out there doing these kinds of things or not? And what do we know about um, what will motivate people to do more of this kind of work?
1: Yeah, and so in order to do that, we talked with an environmental economist named James Meldrum. James works with a group of people in the U.S. Geological Survey looking at all kinds of different social science and, and economic data and surveys to help inform, you know, what motivates people? Why do people make decisions, you know, in and around the WUI?
0: Yeah, so when we've talked in previous episodes about how it's like, a lot of things with fire, we know what the problems are, we know what the solutions are, and we've known those things for a long time, and yet somehow it just is really difficult to implement them. All that applies to the WUI in a lot of ways. And so one of the interesting things about James's work is that they as social scientists go into particular communities and try to really understand both like what people understand about the places that they live and their attitudes about them. And then also try to understand what would motivate them to do the kind of work that could make their home safer, make their community safer, make landscapes more resilient. And, You know, interestingly, they found that those things can really vary a lot depending on context. So, depending on whether you're talking about a community that's um, mostly a working agricultural community, or if you're talking about a town that's a ski town where a lot of homeowners only go there in the winter and have maybe never thought about the fact that the place around them could catch on fire. So they go into these places and they kinda take these census-like surveys to understand these things. And while they found that a lot is context dependent, they've also found some patterns that have come out of them about what motivates people to take action.
1: Yeah, so one interesting thing that James told us is that people aren't moving into the landscape completely oblivious of the risk of fire.
3: And so it's actually pretty common that people think that wildfires are a natural part of the balance of ecosystem. It's recognized that fire is something that's natural and people are moving into a landscape and they recognize that fire is a part of those processes. It's, It's not a case that people move into these landscapes and don't expect there to be fire and totally surprised about it. Another commonality is that it's very common across a lot of different communities that people do not think that managing wildfire danger is just a government responsibility. They they do think that they have ownership of the problem.
0: Yeah, so I thought that was pretty interesting because, um, you know, it shows that there might actually be a lot more people like Tom living in the WUI than you might think. So then the question is, okay, people understand that fire is... Um, a part of the natural balance of these landscapes, that it's a thing that is likely to occur, um, that they have some role in mitigating the risk, uh, the risk it poses to their property. But then the question is like, well, why don't, they take ac- why don't more of them take action on that?
3: So some of these actionable things, for example, we find roughly half of people say that they would be encouraged by financial assistance. These are cost shares. These are grant programs. And it's really interesting because you can look at 50% and you could say that's either a high number or a low number.
0: One of the interesting and hopeful things about their work was they actually found that even more than money, a lot of people would be encouraged to do more firewise work on their properties by some pretty simple things. One of those is just like information on what specifically they should do.
3: About 60% of people, so about 10% higher than the number that would be encouraged by financial assistance are actually would be encouraged just by specific information about what type of work needs to be done on their property to reduce the risk. So there's this gap, more people actually would be motivated just by being told very specifically, not you need to move trees, you need to reduce the vegetation density, but you need to move these specific trees, but these trees are okay.
1: I really like that because it kind of has like uh like a little bit of a a reading rainbow or a schoolhouse rock kind of vibe to it. Like, (laughs) yeah, knowledge is more valuable than money.
0: Yeah. That's nice, Colin.
1: Uh, It's it's clear that it's really hot in Santa Fe because my like ADD is really kicking in (laughs) and it's tough for me to stay on task.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about a couple other simple fixes and then we'll, Keep moving things along. So, another example of some of the just like really simple things that um, keep people from doing this sort of stuff, they found that people were deterred because they were afraid. They didn't know what they would do with their slash piles after they went through and thinned their property. And so, one of the examples of a simple fix to that is that some organizations just started hosting wood chipper days where they would just, you know, bring a wood chipper into the neighborhood and let people know about it. Um, so they could do the work ahead of time. Then the wood chipper would come in and people could chip their slash piles and their problem solved.
1: And chipper days are just so great. I mean, you got the chipper there making making some mulch, taking care of some slash. You can have like a potluck, have the whole have the whole community, the whole neighborhood come out, make a whole day of it. You know, chipper days 2021. I think we could all get behind that.
0: Chippers and hot dogs.
1: Chippers. True and
0: American hot dogs. tradition. That's it. Okay. And then just one more point I want to hit from James, which is going to transition us back to Tom, is that they've also found that people are really influenced by what their neighbors are doing and what their neighbor's properties look like.
3: When people are making decisions about their wildfire risk living in these communities, they are definitely paying attention to what their neighbor's properties look like. And that happens both through communication channels. They talk with their neighbors about wildfire risk. They talk with their neighbors about these programs. But they also look at it, and that helps develop kind of these social norms of what the properties in this community looks like. And so if you start to get more of a foothold of more places that have the fire mitigation implemented and implemented well on a property, and people say, you know what, I was worried because I thought you were going to have to cut down all the trees, but now I see that actually looks really appealing. It still looks really nice.
1: So we just made an appointment to put solar on our house, but we only did it after our after our neighbor did it.
0: Yeah, and then you were like, oh shit, I'm a climate change professional and here I am still burning coal to keep my lights on.
1: Yeah, I I think of it more, I burn more natural gas, but I don't really know.
0: So I'm thinking Tom may have one of these properties that like he told us even the previous owner had done a lot of work on their property before they moved in to get it to that sort of 40 trees per acre point. Um, And maybe this is one of the properties where he lives where, you know, people can drive by and be sort of like, oh, that actually looks pretty nice. Like, I don't have to cut down all the trees on my property to be more safe from fires. And, you know, maybe I can get on board with this.
1: Well, so, Callie, this all sounds really well and good, but are we painting too rosy of a picture here? And aren't there places that reducing the risk of fire is just... It's not possible, I mean, we can't create a situation where it's safe to live on the beach. you know, shouldn't we be also thinking about how do we put some how do we put some restrictions on on where people live and, and what people do?
0: yeah, so that's a good question, and you know we put that to Tom, and here's what he said
2: well, you know it's a bit you know the analogy you've heard, I'm sure everybody uses this, is is analogy of floodplains, right, so there's zoning and regulations that kind of, that some places don't allow you to build on a floodplain at all period. Right. And then there are other places where maybe the flood risks are less, but you still are required If you live there, you have to take certain precautions. Like maybe you have to build your house up on stilts and you have to put some dikes in around your house. Right. So, you know, there's different degrees of that. And I, I think there probably are some places where, you know, it's unwise to build houses and, and, probably it should be very difficult to get loans to build houses there and maybe you know there's there's some insurance issues where it's not possible to get insurance there but there are other places where you know with with judicious and careful action on our part we can live we can live in those places and this is one of those places i believe the ponderosa pine forests of the southwest are places that people have lived
0: so i think one thing that he's getting at here is just this kind of like classic thing, just this classic answer to all things fire, which is that it depends. You know, there may be some landscapes where we should put some barriers to people building houses there or also maybe rebuilding houses. But Tom's argument, at least, is that southwestern Ponderosa forests aren't one of those places, that if we put in the work you know, these are places that people can live sustainably. And part of the reason he thinks that is just that people have lived in these forests with fire for eons.
1: We know from archaeological records that people have been living on these, on these mountains and mesas for, you know, time immemorial. And one of the questions that Tom had as, as a researcher was how did those people living on the landscape interact with fire. And so working with a group of scientists and researchers, which included, you know, cultural leaders from uh, Jemez Pueblo, they actually kind of dove into the archeological records and paired that with the fire history record to get a sense of what this landscape was like with humans and fire on it.
2: And what we found out was that when the Jemez people were living here in large numbers and, and the numbers actually were quite high, if you do the the calculation for the population level of Hamish people living in these forests, it fits the definition, the modern definition of a wildland urban interface, number of people per area. And so when they were living here, there was actually more fire. So they were actually using fire and reducing their fire risk by burning really frequently.
0: And obviously, you know, we can't draw direct parallels between the way ancestral Puebloan people lived on these landscapes and the way that people of the 21st century live on them, but still.
2: But on the other hand, it's just a fundamental lesson that it is possible to utilize wood resources to to work with the forest and work with the land in a way to reduce the fuels, and at the same time use fire in a sustainable way to make it possible to live here over time. And actually to have a forest, have a functioning forest and a functioning watersheds. It's possible to do that. And that's, that's a really important lesson. It's possible.
1: For me, the take home after talking with Tom and James is that a lot of this is really solvable. And again, it kind of comes back to this reimagining or re envisioning or relearning in some ways the, the way that people and communities lived with fire and interacted with fire in a more, a more active way than we do than we do now, aside from just, you know, going like hell to put them out. The other thing that leaves me with a little bit of hope is that the things that James's research is kind of teasing out is that a lot of these solutions are fairly straightforward and and pretty simple and just need to be enacted in a place-based and place-specific way. And, you know, then we can get to scale. We can get to something that's actually meaningful and has a positive impact for both forest and communities in the, in the West and Southwest.
0: Thanks so much to Tom Swetnam and James Meldrum for talking with us for this episode.
1: Yeah. This podcast is produced in collaboration with the Southwest Fire Science Consortium and funded by the Joint Fire Science Program.